Welcome to StellarCast, the Stellar Recruitment Podcast. Let's go on an inspiring journey. By listening, learning, and taking key actions from our own recruitment experts, as well as industry leaders and inspirational individuals. By unlocking our own transformative change, we can all become the best versions of ourselves. Hey guys, we're super lucky here to have Dan Hunt joining us here today. He is the co-founder of Mental Health Movement, which is a wonderful organisation helping organisations and individuals with mental health and mentally healthy workplaces. Beyond that, he started his career as a prop forward for the St George Dragons. So he shares in a really vulnerable, open fashion, has some really simple takeaways for you to learn from. We covered so much great stuff with Dan. We've split this into two instalments. So this is the first instalment. Enjoy it and be sure to tune in for the second instalment also. Cheers. Well, look, guys, uh, we're super lucky to have Dan Hunt uh, here with us today, uh, founder of the Mental Health Movement. Um, really looking forward to unpacking what the guys do and, and I guess Dan's journey within that because I think it's fair to say a uh, huge need and requirement for organisations like Dan. So uh, welcome, Dan. Really looking forward to having the, the chat. And I guess maybe the best way to sort of set the scene is to sort of quantify I guess part of the reality that we're we're, we're sort of living through, and uh, I think the the Productivity uh, Commission found mental health costs employers up to you know somewhere in the vicinity of forty billion, and lower participation, absenteeism, presenteeism, which is people showing up to work but unable to be productive. I'll be keen to understand through your experience, you know, what's your view on this, and and what needs to change to address this phenomenon. I mean, obviously it's a so a d- dynamic, complex question, but I'll be keen to sort of understand your take on that from your experience. Yeah, and look, as we as we know from obviously that that commission and their findings, but absenteeism, presenteeism, uh, mental ill health is, is the leading cause of, of those. And, and you look at the cost to the economy, but then you look at sort of work cover claims uh, that they're skyrocketing, in particular psychological claims. Uh, but then you, I guess the challenge here is, I remember when I first started work at, at work. Uh, before I made my NRL uh, career, coming from a, a, an area of domestic violence where I had a lot of things I had to process. And I was 17, 18 years old. And I remember my, I was doing 40 hours a week then. And I remember my boss said to me, don't bring your problems into work. And it's like, well, I spend most of my, my life here. Where else am I supposed to take them? Yeah. And it's kind of, you don't, you're not John and Diane at home, John and Diane at work. You're John and Diane the whole person. So that's the thing where if people are coming into a workplace where they don't feel supported, their leadership doesn't know how to start, hold, support, link in, in and around that. They haven't been provided sort of the support, the resources, the, those, or the training, all those different elements that make a mentally healthy, supportive workplace. There's there's obviously going to be some challenges there. But the thing about it as well, it's not just the psychosocial hazards in the workplace. There's the contributing factors outside. So finances, pressures, upbringings, expectations, drugs and alcohol, illness, grief, loss where these things are affecting us as a human being. And to think that that's not going to come into the workplace, well, that's that's ridiculous. Of course it is. And I draw back to my experience in the workplace that I did in professional sport. And you talk about presenteeism, where you're there in body, but your mind somewhere else. So for me, 
I was there taking a kickoff in front of 45,000 people and I was worrying about things from my past and my upbringing that I hadn't processed. How do you think those games and my performance and things like that, if I was on a piece of heavy machinery, like that's a workplace accident right there. So how do you obviously be able to uh, better manage, it's not stop, but how do you better manage absenteeism, presenteeism? Look, there's no one answer, but from the, the, those findings from that, that, that commission, obviously it is elements to create, develop and maintain a mentally healthy supportive workplace, which, look, it includes removing stigma, providing mental health literacy, building mental health resilience, improving leadership capability, uh, improving help-seeking behaviours, uh, providing access to support uh, in, in, in different ways for what, what people need. Um, because you look at it at the moment, the EAP is kind of the mental health strategy at the moment. The EAP uptake sits between 4 and 11% in the Australian workplace. But everyone has a mental health. So whatever's happening at the moment isn't quite there. But I look back when I was diagnosed in 2010 of November to where we are now, we've got to look at, well, we have come a long way. We're doing a podcast now. There's an ISO standard 45,003 being released. You, you're doing some great work promoting all of that. So we, there's a lot of positives in this space as well. Um, so I'm big on identifying the change, the challenge, the adversity, the problem, but that's what can we use with literature, research, clinical validation, anecdotal evidence to build what's the solution look like? What's the blueprint look like? What's the strategy or the framework look like? And then it's, well, how do we do that? And there is best practice, but every workplace is different and every person within that workplace is different. So it's also about assessing the individual workplace to then align or match up with the, the, the standards of what is best practice as well. But yeah, there are definitely um, things that we're seeing in the workplace from the, the frontline work, in particular around safety, for example. I've sat in tens of thousands of toolbox talks where they'll be talking about sort of an incident or some um, their sort of injuries and, and elements like that. And it comes back to lack of focus, lack of concentration, fatigue. They're all directly related to the way you think, act and feel, which is your mental health. So if we can better manage those things, you're going to reduce, well, in, in that sense, the, the, the safety incidents, your total recordable injuries. And if you're thinking better, feeling better and you're being better, you're going to want to come into work. Yeah, so huge, huge upside. And I'm sort of keen to understand some of the stuff you're doing with organisations, you've you've helped many organisations and individuals within that. Uh, so we'll talk about that in a minute. But I mean, it's particularly relevant that we're talking about this during Movember. And as you can probably see, I've got a very dodgy moustache there. If you look really closely, you can see that. I did notice the caterpillar on the top lip. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything, but no, I absolutely love it. So it's, it's, good. A, it's, it's good. a good cause, as you know. But um, so it's, it's relevant that we record it during this month. But um You'd be uh, far more informed in the detail than what I am. But, you know, from what I see here and, and read, you know, we're living in a time where drug and alcohol abuse and the water, water mental health or ill mental health, you know, it, it all appears to be going in the wrong direction. You know, I'd be sort of keen to understand from your point of view, is drug and alcohol abuse just escapism from the reality that some people are living in? And how do we change the current trajectory of suicide rates, which is still huge um, and really alarming? Uh, and, and I guess within that, there's still you know a reluctance of people seeking help. So, what's your sort of take on all of that? Uh, yeah, look, I think there's there's elements anecdotally which I'll share through my own challenges with substance, as well as 
studying in the space and then obviously yeah, linking people to support uh, in the space as well. But in and around that suicide management piece, it's obviously like, what, what are we seeing that? Nine Australians take their own life every single day. 76% of those are men. So seven men uh, are taking their own life every single day. And drugs and alcohol and substance is a risk factor. It does increase the, the risk of suicide. But when you have substance use, which is obviously a, a mental health disorder, but it could be coexisting or there's that comorbidity with an anxiety disorder, a bipolar disorder, depressive disorders. So to say, yeah, look, is it escapism? Is it a coping strategy? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And is it a, a positive coping strategy? Well, no, no, it's not. And what defines a substance use disorder? Well, it's when it starts to affect like the law, when it starts to affect your health, when it starts to affect your work, and when it starts to affect your relationships and you can't cut back, that's when it can potentially be a substance use disorder. So how many people, they say 5% of the Australian population are currently living with a substance use disorder. Well, is, is that accurate or is, is you look at COVID and what it brought in terms of the, the percentage of the population that are now drinking more and, and, and then a higher percentage of that to deal with the added stress, uncertainty and anxiety of what restrictions, lockdowns and, and everything that that brought. So... As a population, like I grew up in substance use and, and issues there, I come into a professional environment where I was kind of train hard, play hard, drink hard. Mm. And then you look at Australian culture, and look, it's not everyone. Well, I know I am generalising, but when things go well, we'll have a drink. When things don't go so well, we'll we, we kind of have a drink as well. And I'm not saying don't have a drink, but for me and my journey, when I hit rock bottom in 2010 um, through a, a, an injury, and missing the grand final and all the things that I'd swept under the carpet for 23 years from my bring come back and hit me like a ton of bricks. That's how I was conditioned, kind of anger, isolation, and I seen a lot of that growing up with that self-medication. I did turn to, to drugs and alcohol, anger, isolation. It was to numb the pain I was in. It was to escape reality, as you said. But when I did go to a mental health clinic and spent time in a rehab program, it wasn't so much the substance I was using. It was the reasons behind why I was using it. And then that was part of the journey, working with the, the clinical professionals, working with cognitive behavioral therapy, all these schema therapy, these different treatments that I'd went through. It was about processing and changing my relationship with the trauma, the grief, the things I went through growing up. And when I was able to manage, process those, those elements, I was able to better manage the substance use, uh, but I was able to better manage my mental illness in type 2 bipolar disorder and find those coping strategies, the support network, the self-care, the mindsets, all the different elements that make up looking after your mental health, but also better managing your mental illness. And th that's obviously been a journey over the last 11 years. So the thing about it is, that's a really, uh, and you'll, you'll probably already know this, there's no answer to this question. There, there is some, some light around it um, in, in terms of people will self-medicate. And it's not just with drugs and alcohol. It could be so many different things. And when it starts to affect those elements I spoke about and you can't cut back, it, it, it can sometimes amplify situations. Uh, and you look at it in and around suicide. People that, that take their own life are not in the right headspace. They, there's so many reasons why, why people do, do get to that point. But it's not necessarily that they want to die or they don't want to be here or they want to hurt their loved ones or family members. It's that they're in that much pain that they want it to end. And sometimes self-medication with substance can numb that pain, but the pain's still going to be there once that substance wears off. Mm -hmm. and, and I've learned that both through my studies, but also through lived experience and life experience. And I guess the, the, the key there is if you are someone listening that is worried about that or it potentially is becoming an issue or 
if you are having uh, any suicidal thoughts, like I want you to know that it's okay, but it's also okay to seek that support. Don't keep it a secret. Don't keep suicide a secret. Don't think you have to do it on your own or you've got to DIY it and Bunnings it. That's what I tried to do. And when I realized it was okay to seek support, it just draws a line in the sand and it opens up the world of, of, of opportunity. But it starts you on your mental health journey to, to not stop struggle, but to better manage it, better support it. And there's other ways than substance. I, I know that more, more than anyone. Mm. I mean, it seems like you you went on this huge journey and, and you, you know, through the process you're you, you improve your understanding of what you're working through. Uh, you process some of the the dynamics that were contributing to that. And you learn some great strategies. But I mean, you talk about the power of of storytelling. You know, in 2010, you know, as we sort of touched on, I think before you were diagnosed with type two uh, bipolar disorder. Um, I, I'm sort of keen to understand at the height of that. You know, what was your reality at the time? How did you navigate it, you know, beyond some of the things you've already talked about? And what did you learn through that time, I guess, with the benefit of hindsight? And, and I think you touched on some of those key takeaways that maybe other people can sort of grasp or get their head around in terms of helping them. But, you know, talk us through that journey. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And, and I think um, hindsight is a beautiful thing. And I, I wish I could um, not just talk to a younger version of myself, but this is why I do what I do to try and share not ram things down people's throat, but connect through the power of story and just provide options and help people get their hands back on their steering wheel. It's not about trying to take over their steering wheel. It's about empowerment, not disempowerment. So for me, I guess, leading into that struggle, I was a product of my environment growing up, very angry, uh, a real negative uh, attitude, hated myself, the world and everything in it. And when anything went wrong, I was, it was a real victim mentality. I blamed it on my upbringing, my past. It's like, oh, that's why, that's why. And it was like, well, the old saying, you've got a chip on your shoulder. And then that was me. Obviously, professional sport really gave me a sense of identity, purpose, and belonging. And it kind of helped me get back on that straight and narrow. Uh, and it's not just professional sport. It could be a relationship. It could be work. It could be a career. It could be study. Whatever it is for that individual. But then when that was taken away in 2010, obviously, the pinnacle of what you do is to make a, and, and play in a premiership and win one. And I didn't feel a part of it at the time, which I know I, I was now, being a little bit older. But that kind of sent me off the rails. But when the thing that kept me on the straight and narrow was taken away, it was the floodgates come from all the stuff from my past, my brain that was swept under the car, which I didn't understand at the time, which I do now. That hit me like an absolute ton of bricks. And for me, you said, what did that reality look like? Well, it was obviously the, the, the negative self-talk was just berserk. It was the war inside my head. Why has this happened to me? How has this happened to me? Um, I can't handle it. And it, it just ruminated, creating scenarios in your head that may never happen, worrying about this, all this stuff, reminiscing on all the, the traumas and the, the, the scenarios that happened growing up and the fear of failure. And then it's like, I've, I've let myself down, i let my family. And this just, like, it was just exhausting in your head. So... It was kind of then you get introduced to painkillers for the surgery um, and then that's a period of disconnection, isolation that feeds that negative self-talk. So you sort of take that and it numbs that for a little bit and it quietens that head noise down. So then you sort of obviously increase it and then it's the alcohol and it's, yeah, and then it's a very slippery slope where you're like, holy shit, how am I getting back from me? Mm. And I was scared. I was absolutely shit scared and, and, I didn't know how to ask for help because I was brought up to get on with it, get over and harden up. And if you struggled, you get you get through it on your on your own. Being resilient is you do it on your own, and you don't tell anyone else about it. So that's what I tried to do. And 
it almost ended up to the point where I wasn't here. And I was in the deepest, darkest hole, and I had no idea I was getting out. It was only that I had support networks. Uh, my partner, who's my wife now, has been my number one rock solid through all of this, and I wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if it wasn't for her. It was my mum, and Wayne Bennett was my coach at the time, who I'm still quite close with, um, where they got through some conversations, connection. They got me to realise that it was okay to struggle. Part of the human experience. You didn't have to be this big tough front rower or this big tough man. Vulnerability is, is okay. Struggle is okay. But you don't have to suffer in silence and do it on your own. So from that, one of the hardest questions that I get asked or our team gets asked in this space, how do you help someone that doesn't want to help themselves? And that's a really hard question to answer. Sometimes there is no answer. You cannot force someone to seek support unless it's a crisis. People need to go through their own experience, their own catalyst that gets them to the point where the penny drops, the perception shifts. And sometimes that can take a lifetime. It can take a week, a month. It's different for every individual. And there's an old cliche saying you can lead a horse to water, you can't make it drink. But you can support that horse until it does drink. You can provide the environment for that horse and you cannot give up on that horse. And the people in my support network helped me to, to get to that point. And once I realized that, and it was a conversation I had with Wayne where I, I, I lost it and broke down and shared stuff with him from my past and my brain. I'd never shared with anyone. From that, it was like the weight of the world lifted off my shoulders. And there was no answers or solutions, but it got me to just see things a bit differently. And then from there, I did go and seek support through the Black Dog Institute. And that seven hours I spent up there with a clinical psychologist and a psychiatrist, uh, and obviously being really open, vulnerable, and I want to make it clear, if you seek support, it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be diagnosed with anything. But for me, I learned that those biological factors, those genetical factors, those obviously the psychological factors, and then those social and environmental ones that culminated, coexisted. And I was diagnosed in November of 2010 with type 2 bipolar disorder. And for me, when that happened, it was other than having my kids and meeting my wife, it was the best thing that's ever happened because... It wasn't a label. It wasn't a negative. What it gave me was context, mm. clarity, understanding. But just like rehabbing a physical injury, I looked at it very similar to that, that you read in the te textbooks, he or she, uh, will, will 20% of the population will suffer with the mental illness in any 12-month period. Well, once I started learning, I, was, I, I'm, I don't want to suffer. I want to learn to better manage. Mm. And I say that. I manage a mental illness. I don't suffer with one. And that can be done. You can live with the mental illness and be mentally healthy. But it does come with work, support. Like anything, if you want to get good at it or you want to be good at it, you've got to put things in place. So having that context, clarity, and motivation, it drew a line in the sand for me and it started me on my mental health journey. And from there, that didn't make everything A-OK. -okay. I did have to go to a, a rehab program, spend time with the, in a mental health clinic. Um, I spent, uh, yeah, time there to learn and understand uh, build resilience, self-care, process a lot of things, the, 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 the contributing factors to help me with the transition back. I had to build support networks. I had people in my support network that enabled my behavior um, that were, were toxic, that I'd leave there trying to, to get some support and you'd leave there worse off. So I had to recalibrate my support networks. I had to put controls in place to better manage myself and I had to build out the things that work and what, what didn't work. And there's an old Abraham Lincoln quote. He says, when I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. And I, I kind, kind of live my life by that uh, in, in a way. But I'm not saying now that I don't struggle, I don't fall down, I don't still have that negative self-talk. I, I, I definitely do. And, and I still make mistakes. 
And the thing about it is, though, I've realised that it's a process. It's, there's no finish line to it. It is an ongoing process and you're going to learn things, you're going to fall down, you're going to, you're going to have to adapt and, and that's what resilience is one-on-one. But knowing that you don't have to do it on your own is probably point one. So just the feeling that you're not Robinson Crusoe on a desert island is, is a bloody good feeling. Number two is having a level of awareness to understand that what goes on in your life, the change, challenge and adversity, it does affect the way you think, act and feel. And then having the awareness, well, how does it affect the way you think, act and feel? And then what can you build out to better manage and better cope and support that? And whether that's clinical professional support, whether it's medication, uh, whether it's uh, exercise, sleep, nutrition, gratitude, mindfulness, sunlight, nature, the, the list goes on. But whether it's also challenging your thoughts, challenging the, the different mindsets, fixed over growth mindset. Uh, but the other thing is you can't do one or two things once a week and think everything's going to be all right for the rest of your life. It's, it's, it's an ongoing process. And when you do that proactively, you, you are going to get better outcomes. But, yeah, I, I think that in a nutshell, that's probably yeah what, what I've learned. And, um, I mean, fantastic answer. I mean, we could spend hours unpacking some of those things you sort of talked yeah. about. But, but I think at the very essence of things, the most simplistic takeaway and maybe the most meaningful one is for those going through a bit of a tough time is find your find your network to confide in, the ones you trust and, and have got your back. In your case, it was Wayne Bennett, yeah. your mum and your now wife, and you were prepared to be vulnerable. I think without that step, you know, you, you're pretty much yeah. shot, aren't you? Because if you're not going to be vulnerable, you're not going to take the time to confide and, and speak to people and seek some support or just, you know, have that weight lifted off you through being able to confide, you know, how you're traveling, all that sort of stuff. I think it's very hard to do anything else. I mean, you talked about some really good stuff beyond that in terms of understanding it and coming up with a bit of, uh, you know, habits and rituals to manage your mental health. But I think without that vulnerability and the right people around you, it's just so, so hard. So I think yeah. most, most people become yeah. insular when they're going through that tough time and and, and, and yeah. fade away. But I think you really need to do the opposite, even though it doesn't always feel like the most comfortable thing to do, right? Yeah. And I think that what we're trying to do with the work we do is trying to be that penny to drop for that individual or that, that, that experience where you connect with that story and it's like, oh, shit, well, I've kind of been through like that or I kind of feel like that and you're saying it's okay and there's another way and if you seek support and you're not alone and all this and it's like, wow. Or if it's someone that likes to do things on their own in that point in time, will you build that resilience for that individual and then if they know they get to a point where that's no longer working, well, that's okay as well and there's support there for you as well. So it's, yeah, it's trying to, I guess, have plenty of different ingredients, plenty of different recipes as long as it's aligned with best practice so that people can build out their own sort of uh, meals, so to speak, using those ingredients and that recipe because everyone's different. Uh, but, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head there. You summarise that really well. So going beyond some of your own personal experiences, now with the work that you guys are doing um, with the mental health movement, I'm keen to understand what does a mentally healthy workplace look like and sort of keen to understand, I guess, what you guys regard as your blueprint to a mentally healthy workplace. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really good question. Um, and I think it, it's something, in a way, is probably what the, what companies and, and decision makers probably need a bit of understanding around where um, it's not just ad hoc where you pick this or we should be doing this. Best practice around what creates and develops a mentally healthy, sustainable workplace is where well, you've got to obviously measure or assess where, where's that workplace at. 
So there is like obviously pulse surveys, culture surveys and things like that. So uh, that will get your finger on the pulse. It'll give you an understanding of contributing factors of leadership capabilities, support capabilities, uh, EAP uptake, uh, psychosocial hazards, the, all the challenges in the workplace, uh, what what people have been through struggles, kind of what's their biggest contributing factors, etc. And when you get a bit of an understanding of what that is, then you can build out your mental health framework or strategy, so to speak. Um, and then that's where our blueprint comes in, where you select kind of from the We've got what we call our mental health workplace audit in stage one, where it helps be able to do that. And then from there, you build out the, the interventions that are best suited to your uh, company's needs, objectives, results of that audit. That's aligned with the recommendations from uh, work health and safety as well. And, and then, look, those elements, our blueprint is awareness, education, training, resources, and links to appropriate support. So that's working in conjunction with EAPs, um, telehealth organisations, a range of different other organisations. Uh, but look, what a mentally healthy, supportive workplace looks like is you need to build a level of mental health literacy because people don't know what they don't know. Some people don't even realise that they've got a mental health. If you've got a brain in your head, you've got a mental health. Mm. And the better you look after it, the better you look after yourself. Mm. Some people think being a support network is you've got to fix and solve and diagnose people. Where that's not the case at all. So you've got to have a level of mental health literacy throughout your whole workplace. You've got to get some mental health education throughout the whole workplace. Because when people start to understand things a little bit more, they can start to do things a little bit better. They start to think and feel a bit better and they start to be a bit better. And then they can help support their fellow workers do that as well. Other elements is you've got to improve help-seeking behaviour. So understanding what are these barriers that are stopping people seeking support. And as a support, how do you help overcome some of these barriers? So if we get people that slide down this continuum can uh, have a bit of that self-awareness but understand that it is okay to seek support, we have more people seeking support. We're going to have, have, have obviously more improved mental health outcomes. Um, then looking at leadership capability, probably one of the biggest things throughout COVID um, with a lot of organisations we've worked with is we'd, we kind of got to the point where we'd done the, the literacy, the education with the whole workforce so we've kind of improved a bit of mental health resilience, improved help-seeking behaviours, but we hadn't got to the point of improving leadership capability. So a lot of workers were reaching out to their managers and supervisors, mm. but they didn't necessarily know how to start, hold those conversations, understand role and responsibility, escalation process, links to support. Uh, so that leadership capability is a really important piece. Uh, having your leaders, they don't have to be mental health professionals, but being able to identify a change, Start and hold, build rapport, open-ended questions, active listening, and then being able to link into appropriate supports, follow back up, um, is a really, really important piece. And look, those elements there. Then the sustainability piece is well, looking at peer support programs, providing support by the worker for the worker. So getting workers trained up in mental health first aid, mental health response, accredited training, where they've got the skills to provide support on the job by the worker, for the worker, when the leaders may not be there, when it's night shift and it's 2 a.m. and someone is going through a bit of a struggle. So there, there's those elements there. Then when, obviously, where the workplace is heading uh, with the ISO 45003 uh, international standard, uh, that's probably where those elements are all part of that. But what has to happen, and you did a fantastic podcast previously that I, I listened to, and I won't steal the thunder of one of the questions as, as well that we'll unpack, but... Um, those psychosocial hazards that are now being identified within the workplace where 
that's an employer's responsibility, not just to look after the physical health, but also the mental health of their, their workforce. Uh, there's obviously those, I think there's 18 being identified within the workplace, like job control, job demand, sort of bullying and harassment, isolated work, where these affect the way the worker thinks, acts and feels. But they're in conjunction with all these other contributing factors outside of work. So kind of getting it at work, getting it outside of work, if we can identify them and not necessarily get rid of them, but better control them, better support them, uh, and, and as we say, reduce the risk, not just treating symptoms, but actually not just that sort of what, what, what they speak about, those tertiary interventions, but looking at the prime, the secondary, which we're starting to do a lot better, but looking at those primary interventions as well, look, we're, we're going we're gonna to get better outcomes. We're, we're going to have men- more mentally healthy, supportive individuals, crews, teams, workplaces, communities, sporting clubs, organisations, societies, and that's the, the, the future, the goal. That's And it's going to be a process as well. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's kind of where it's at. I think one of the biggest challenges is, though, it's just very reactive at the moment where you'll kind of you'll get into a workplace, you, you'll really connect, you'll, you'll start to make a, a, a difference over, say, a 12, 18-month period, and they don't necessarily have a mental health committee or anything like that, and that person moves on from that role that was advocating it, and the kind of the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater, and all that hard work's undone, and they they'll, they'll go another way, or you have to start it all again, or there's just so many challenges uh, in and around that ad hoc rather than that sort of sustainable approach to it. I love uh, a bunch of those responses, but I love that notion of a mental health committee. And and maybe in time we're going to see chief wellness officers and those sorts of people that, you know, at board level, they're talking about strategies and initiatives and metrics and it's a constant the same way you look at other key metrics and all that sort of stuff because there's such a a huge upside of of doing all that. But I think one of the other comments you make is around awareness. Like you say, if if you've got a brain in in your head, you've got your mental health you, and, and some days it's going to be good, other days it's not going to be so good. And it takes me back to, a, I was part of a uh, webinar, lucky enough, with uh, Malcolm Turnbull and he was being pretty open about his own mental health challenges and he had some moments where I think he questioned whether or not he wanted to be around and, and the pressure and stress and all that sort of stuff. But he sort of, the, the, the comment he made was, with our physical health, we put on our belt buckle every day uh, or some item of clothing that, that gives us an indication are we the same, are we going in the wrong direction or, or whatever the case is, or we jump on the scales, you've got some awareness or consciousness but with our mental health we don't seem to have that same consciousness and awareness around how we're travelling and I guess taking it back to the physical form, if the belt buckle is a bit tight, you go well maybe I need to eat better or do some exercise to address that. Cut dessert out. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> so you know, yeah. getting to some daily awareness around how am I today and what can I do to better that, I think uh, Maybe you guys are doing that within the, the uh, corporate context, but I think, you know, at an individual level, the, the better awareness we've got and then having some tools and techniques, I think that can only help. Thanks again, guys, for listening in today. Really appreciate it. Look forward to sharing the future podcast. Cheers. Thank you for listening to StellarCast. This show aligns with why Robbie McIlwraith and Sean McCambridge co-founded the company. Their mission was to help and nurture others to reach and exceed their potential. For trusted recruitment and career advice, contact Stella today.